Good morning. Welcome to Trinity. My name is Jesse Robinson. I'm a pastor here at Trinity. Uh, if you're new here, we're so excited that you're here. Um, I would love to meet you just right out the back doors after this service. Uh, if you are new, you need to know that I have a physical disability called cerebral palsy. And if you laugh with me at it, it's okay to laugh. Okay, that will come in handy later on. So our passage today is a tour de force on irony. Irony. The textbook definition of irony is, quote, a state of affairs or an event that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects and is often amusing as a result. Okay, irony. Contrary to our expectations. Uh, the modern-day prophet Alanis Morissette has some great examples in her song, Isn't It Ironic? She says, an old man turned 98. He won the lottery and died the next day. Irony. A traffic jam when you're already late. Irony. When I was a high schooler, I had a, a deep appreciation of irony. Uh, I love to shop at thrift shops. And I found all these fantastic t-shirts that were all about gymnastics. <laughs> so I, this obviously disabled kid, would wear shirts with massive bold letters, gymnastics is my life. <laughs> That's irony. That's irony. The first time, one, one time I found a, a shirt that said, Impact Repair Service. Impact Repair Service. And I kid you not, the first day I wore that, I wrecked my car. <laughs> the policeman in my small town, whose name was Officer Ducheneau, um, he read my shirt, took one glance at me, read my shirt, and, and just laughed. <laughs> Sometimes irony gets you, right? Sometimes irony gets the best of you. Irony upends our expectations. And there's something about irony that I think is really healthy about us appreciating. Because irony reveals just how weak we actually are. We, we think we're so in control, and yet irony exposes that we're not nearly as con in control as we think we are. It's a window, irony is, into our hypocrisies and our native weaknesses. Irony, in its best sense, invites us to be humble, to be human. You can either rage at it or laugh at it. But today, as we look at irony, we're going to see that actually God's Word contains so much irony that, that God Himself intends irony. He intends irony. And our salvation, our very salvation, what Christians believe, we actually believe that our salvation depends on the most ironic event of all. So we're going to look at the scandalous irony of the cross the church. Let's turn our attention to God's Word. I'll be reading from the NIV this morning because it reads a little smoother. You can follow along in your bulletin. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 31. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the, intelligent of the, intelligent, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. 
Verse 20, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, we come before you thankful for your word and we ask. We ask that you would meet us here, that you would upend our pride and arrogance, Lord, that you would show us the beauty of your holiness, the beauty of your gift of grace to us. Thank you that you come to us still. In Christ's name, amen. I have three points for us today. The first one is the scandal of the cross. Let's look at the scandal of the cross. We're going to start with verse 23 and work our way backwards and then forwards. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. Now that word stumbling block in the Greek is scandalon. Scandalon. You can hear the English word scandal. Christ crucified is a scandal. What is a scandal? It's, well, in the news, a scandal is when one does or says something offensive or shameful. So the, the cross, Christ crucified, is something that's offensive. It's an affront. And then Paul says it's foolishness, folly. The word is closer to our word for madness. It's insane. Now we live live in a Christianized culture, and it's difficult to see the cross as a scandal or madness. But it was both. In verse 22, Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. This is what they were expecting. The Jews were looking for a political Messiah. And they wanted signs because they had been saved from Egypt by these incredible signs. Remember Pharaoh and Moses performing these signs and wonders. And they crossed through the Red Sea. They were saved by signs. And so the Jews are waiting for a similar exodus, a salvation. But what did they get? What they got was a Messiah who did not deliver them from Rome, but was killed by Rome, crucified by the state. In fact, 
Christ crucified, what Paul uses that, Christ means Messiah. A Messiah crucified would have been a contradiction to the Jews. That's absurd. Even more scandalous is that these monotheists, monotheists, these Jews, they, they hear in Jesus this claim to be God. This claim to be God. There's this double scandal. Really, the Messiah killed by Rome? And he thinks he's God? God can't die. Scandalous. Pure offense. The Gentiles, on the other hand, had no conceptions of a Messiah. Greek civilization imparted to the Mediterranean world this appreciation for learning and philosophy. Herodotus, a Greek historian, says that the Greeks were, quote, zealous for every kind of learning. And so for these, Gentile, these Greeks, these Gentiles, they hear about this claim that Jesus, a Jewish Messiah, who then is killed by the Roman state, yeah, he's going to save everyone. You hear that sounds like folly, madness? It's crazy. Recently, much has been made about the modern untenableness of the Christian faith. You see it on the internet. Um, young people deconstructing their faith. Perhaps most famously, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor spends 700 pages explaining why modern Western people find belief in God increasingly implausible. The secular crosswinds impress that this material world is all that there is. Currently, belief in God seems like the least objectionable part of Christian faith. What about hell? or eternal judgment, or Christian sexual ethics. These are ruled scandals and madness to the modern man and woman. All that to say is that we're, things were not all that different back then than they are now. This is no new historical development. That's why in verse 18 Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's always been foolishness, folly, madness. And here is the temptation of the church. It is a temptation of the church that we sidestep that scandal. That we downplay it. For the sake of our social status, our intellectual status, being in a university city such as our own. The church has always intended to do this. Dorothy Sayers, the, the British author, during World War II, rebuked the Anglican church for trying to downplay the doctrine she said, you're trying to sentimentalize Christianity, trying to take the moral essence, but you can't do that. It is essentially doctrine. She says, quote, Christianity was not beautiful phrases, nor comforting sentiments, nor vague aspirations to loving kindness, nor the promise of something nice after death. Now listen to how she explains it. It is the terrifying assertion that the same God who made the world lived in the world, and passed through the grave and the gate of death. That's what it is. The terrifying assertion that the same God who made the world pass through the grave and the gate of death. Show that to the heathen. And they may not believe it, but at least they may realize that here is something that a man might be glad to believe. We might be ashamed of it, but God is not ashamed of the scandal of the cross. In fact, Paul says in verse 21 that God intended it. Look at verse 21. 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Verse 20 says the scandal defies the Greek philosophers as well as the Jewish teachers. It didn't make sense to the intellectual class of its day. Only God would have been so bold, so creative, so iconoclastic, so scandalous to dream up the cross. Bible commentator Gordon Fee paraphrases this passage as, Who in the name of wisdom would have dreamed this up? Only God is so wise as to be so foolish. The cross was scandalous. The cross is scandalous by design. But there's a deeper scandal implicit in our passage. Why is the cross so scandalous? It's not only the intellectual scandal. It's also the moral. It's, it's what it says about each one of us. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will say that Christ died for our sins. That the, Christ, the cross was for our sins. In other words, the cross is a scandal to our pride and our sins of self-righteousness. Perhaps the most tenacious psychological notion is that really I and you are a decent moral person. When you hear a critique from your spouse, your parent, your child, your friend, why is defensiveness your default? Right? Why do we struggle to confess our sins to actual people? Because in our flesh, we love to be right. And what the cross says is that you were not right. In fact, you were so backwards, so lost, that God had to send his son to die on a cross that you deserved. Do you feel the scandal? It's your pride. You are not in control. You are not as right as you think you are. As a, as a teenager... I was at youth group one night. We, we met on Wednesday evenings. And I had my driver's license. And so I drove a friend home 10 miles into the country. We were having a good conversation. And so I kept driving past his house. And I missed in the pitch dark the sign that said pavement ends. And very quickly, we were in like deep mud. <laughs> like just deep mud. And my friend got out and pushed with me flooring the accelerator. All it's doing is getting me more and more stuck. And I did not want to call my dad. <laughs> right? Because then I had to admit that I was wrong, that I was foolish, that I was stupid. The scandal of the cross is that we have gotten ourselves so stuck that we cannot get out. We cannot get out. That is the scandal of the cross. Well, let's look at our second point. The irony of the cross. The irony of the cross. We're going to see that in the next four verses. Irony runs up and down the backbone of Paul's argument. In fact, Gordon Fee, as I mentioned earlier, he labels this one of Paul's greatest moments. We get this incredible view into, into biblical history, how Paul sees the way that God has worked. And we're going to see that Paul's irony is not his own creation. It's God himself that intends Irony. Look at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Now that's a quote. Paul is quoting from Isaiah chapter 29. It's from a passage where 
the Lord asserts how his people are giving him lip service, but their hearts are far from him. In other words, they're being hypocritical. And the Lord calls them on it. He says, you, you turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. The Lord says, what's wrong with your hypocrisy is that you think you're a God and I'm not. It's the chief irony of our humanity, isn't it? That we can save ourselves, that we were, we who are made in the image of God actually spurn him and say, no, I'm going to live in my own way. Self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. And yet the very one that we reject in the fall, the very one we say, no, I don't want to live like you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. He is the very one who is our life, who could save us. We have a death grip on self-sufficiency as it kills us. So what does God do with this irony that runs through our DNA? Well, he uncovers, he uncovers its absurdity with his own irony. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. In other words, he says, I'm going to reveal the shortcoming of human power and intelligence. And he does so all through the Bible, right? God chooses, God shows up and says, I am going to make your people great, as many offspring as the stars in the sand. And who does he say it to? An elderly man and a barren woman. Irony. God selects Moses with a speech impediment to be his mouth. Irony. God pairs down Gideon's like thousands of army to go fight. He says, hey, we're going to take 300 because I'm going to beat them with a small army. Irony. The Lord's people will not win by their own strength or their own virtue. Instead, Israel needs to heed Proverbs 16, 18, which says pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And when they get proud, they, they do fall. Then Jesus comes along and he takes irony to a new level. He says, it's the meek and the mourning who are blessed, not those in power. The most righteous one of all has come not for the righteous, but for the sinners, the unrighteous. God uses irony over and over to reveal the absolute contrast between human weakness and his divine power. Back in 1990, critic and author David Foster Wallace wrote an essay on American television. And he explains that irony is, quote, the time-honored way that artists seek to illuminate and explode hypocrisy. Irony exploits between what's said and what's meant between how things try to appear and how they really are. That's what God does. He's a great artist. He's exploiting irony. And by the way, Wallace also says that, the, that our, our moment, our cultural moment, is chock full of irony. Like, we love irony. Think about Seinfeld, right? Seinfeld. It's, it's this absurd portrait Absurd portrait of our human weakness, of our selfishness, of our sin. This is not an endorsement of Seinfeld. But what Seinfeld sees, what this show sees, it demonstrates the absurdity of a world without God. And it 
absolutely flattens all human pride. The characters are constantly hypocritical. It's, and, and you see that through a, a whole genre of comedy. You see it in Arrested Development, Veep, The Office, Parks and Rec. Like, our culture loves irony. But it's, it's, like, it's like we're in this uh, Ecclesiastes moment, right? Like, it's all vanity. But then Wallace says there's a dark side to irony. He says irony is, quote, critical and destructive. It's a ground clearing, but it is singularly unuseful when it comes to constructing anything to replace the hypocrisies it debunks. In other words, it has no gospel. There's no good news. Seinfeld is just the same stupid, selfish people doing the same stupid, selfish things over and over and over again. The end of irony in our age is despair. Despair. Is there any hope? But irony in God's economy is something quite different. Remember, Paul is speaking of the irony of the cross. The cross. Because how how is the cross ironic? Let's think about this. Well, on the cross, Christ appears his weakest. He was physically exhausted, tortured. He's nailed to a beam. He can't move. And yet, in that very weakness... He conquers the strongest enemy of humanity, death itself. His willing submission to death ironically undoes death. The irony of the cross. It sounds like madness, like foolishness. The God who created all matter becomes matter and then dies on a tree. The life of the universe killed. It's absurd. It's madness. Here is what God designs. He says, Christ crucified becomes the wisdom of God to save not just the Jews as a people, but the whole world. Christ, the power and wisdom of God. In other words, God uses irony to save. He uses irony to save, to be gracious. His irony is inviting and gracious. Even the way that God saves us is ironic. Grace is ironic. If you are trying to make yourself right, to save yourself, you will never be saved. As soon as you surrender and accept the grace of the Lord Jesus, then, you, then you're safe. Do you see the irony? Grace, grace, the fact that we don't deserve it. It is by faith, not by effort, that we are saved by the cross. So friends, I want a quick application here. I want to invite you to appreciate the irony of your own life. The times when you thought that you could do what you really couldn't do. The times when you got stuck in the mud. That is the Holy Spirit calling you. Calling you to true humility. Calling you to faith. Calling you to put your faith in the Lord who is all-powerful and all-wise. The Spirit uses those ironic moments to draw him, to draw us to himself. And God's irony always leads inevitably to the cross, to the true power and strength. It leads us, when we, when we appreciate God's irony in, in our own life, it can lead us to a life that is without pretense and that is of true, of true integrity. So we've spoken of the scandal of the cross, the irony of the cross, and now let's look at the boast of the church, our final point, the boast of the church. 
So the Corinthian church has been boasting. Earlier in chapter 1, we didn't read this, Paul calls out their boasting. They're boasting in their tribe. They say, I follow Paul. Some say, I follow Cephas. They thought that they were the elite Christians. They were the intellectual class. They had the best theology and the best pastors. And in good ironic fashion, pride comes before a fall. Paul's about to give them a fall. Paul calls them out. Look at verse 26. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. you you got to love Paul's pastoral sensitivity here. Like, hey, y'all, you were not the brightest crayons in the box. Okay? You didn't have money. You didn't have power. So chill. Like, just chill. That term human standards that Paul uses is the Greek word for the flesh. Sarks fleshly those things that they are valuing those things that are valuing like human intellect education that's good but it's it's not it doesn't save you it's not worth boasting in that's what the world boasts in the world boasts in those things but but corinthians you are not the world you've been saved and there's a different economy in god's economy in fact god's economy is just the opposite of the world It's those who don't have power, who don't have money. They're the ones that God saves. That's the point that Paul is making here. He says, y'all aren't even the B team. But that's the point. Like, y'all aren't the exceptions or a blip on the radar. Because that's exactly the kind of people that God chooses for his kingdom. If God has chosen to reveal himself in the cross, in the cross, which is this epitome of human weakness why would he then go and choose a church full of the elites it doesn't make sense but it does make sense in god's economy because god picks those who are weak to believe in this instrument of weakness that is the cross the church is formed by the same way of the cross and this is not solely because weak people are attracted to the cross as Nietzsche or Marx might have asserted. Although it is true that riches and power are often a barrier to embracing the cross. But this is God's design. This is what Paul says. Look at verses 27 and 28. Do you see the repetition? It says, but God chose. God chose. God chose. In other words, it's all him. It's his agency. God is writing the story. And he is the one that is picking the weak and the foolish. And verses 27 through 31 explain why this is. Look at verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Now don't take that word shame as if God is some insecure frat bro who's like needs to show that he can beat you that word shame is connected to god's vindication to god's justification it is god who's been shamed by mankind who's because mankind has rejected him their creator but god says in the end i will be vindicated And that vindication is served by the people that he saved. The weak and the foolish in the eyes of the world, they are the ones who are going to contribute to God's ultimate vindication. 
We speak often here of justification as our justification, right? That by faith in Christ's righteousness, we are declared righteous before God. But this is God's justification. That he is indeed all good and all beautiful and all wise and all powerful. And that last day, we are going to see God in all his glory and beauty, and he will be vindicated. And if you connected yourself to him, you will also be vindicated because you put your faith in the one who is all good, all beautiful, all glorious. And yet, verse 29 says, no one is going to boast before God. No one is going to boast before him. That would be like me putting out some stupid tweet that I'm the goat of basketball, right? Like, like Michael Jordan and LeBron James should have the right to like shame me, right? It's an absurd claim. It's like a three-year-old scribbling compared to the Sistine Chapel. There's no room for boasting. When before the Lord, we will not be boasting. We'll not even be thinking of ourselves. We're going to be transfixed by his glory, which is terrifying. Our boasting, Paul says, is excluded because we've done nothing to be here. We don't deserve it. Remember grace, the irony of grace? We don't deserve this. We have nothing to boast of. He chose the weak, the fools. I took AP physics in high school, and I made an A, but I didn't deserve it. We were assigned projects that required building things like mousetrap cars and egg drop contraptions and hovercraft. And they demanded a coordination that I didn't have as a disabled kid. So my approach was to go to my dad, who was a university professor of chemistry and physics, usually on the night before it was due, <laughs> and say, help. He did all the work. I have no ground to boast in my A in physics. I had an A by my dad's grace. My A was because of him. And that's what Paul is saying right here. Look at verse 30. It is because of him, that is God, that you are in Christ Jesus. It was God's work that saved us, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. I don't want you to miss out that what God is really saying is that God's boast, God is boasting in his grace. He loves to have grace on us. He loves to show us just how deep and how long and how wide his grace actually is. And that's always been his boast. In the Old Testament, Moses says, I want to see your face. And God gives Moses his name. And he already says, my name is grace and mercy. My name is love. The Lord boasts in his grace, which means that no matter where you are, how righteous, how screwed up you are, if you've got all your T's crossed and your I's dotted, there is no room to boast because God has had grace on us. He is grace. That's why it says in verse 31, Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Grace is an ironic boast, isn't it? To boast in grace requires that you boast in someone else. Because grace necessarily means that you don't deserve it. 
So what does this look like for us, Trinity? I want to give you a couple of examples. John Newton, the slave trader and author of Amazing Grace, he said, towards the end of his life, he said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Do you hear that? That is boasting in grace. Now, this is my last sermon here at Trinity before I leave for California. And I want to give you a couple of parting thoughts. This church understands and knows grace. And I've been so thankful for your love to me and my family. You've been gracious to me in my own pride, youthful pride and foolishness. You've been patient and kind. And Jessica and I are so thankful for you. And I want to encourage you. We've been through some hard years at Trinity. But those hard years, I hope, have actually made us humbler, made us less boastful. Friends, I want Trinity, God wants Trinity to be a place where the grace of Christ is our boast. Where it doesn't matter how many degrees you have, or what kind of cool theology or ministry or you believe in. You are a principled people and you love to do ministry well and excellently and that is great and beautiful. But friends, that is not our boast. Our boast is not to be the coolest church in Charlottesville. Our boast is just to accept the grace of Jesus Christ. To be, to have the faith to be weak and to be fools. Friends, it's hard for for a church like ours, a bunch of successful people. Some of you are successful. That's great. <laughs> a lot of you are, and it's hard for us to be weak. But your health depends on it. Your spiritual health as a church depends on your boasting in your weakness, on your being humble. Because let, as Paul says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He is the one who will wor- work through you and for you, especially in your weakness. Especially because that is what he does. That's what it means to make the message of the cross your life. Paul is not just giving us a, a sermon on how to preach. He's, he's telling us the message of the cross is how you live. Take the cross into you. The way that God has engineered the world is that weakness is strength because it is in him. So friends, make the message of the cross your life, your living in your marriage, in your parenting. Be weak. Say sorry. Confess. Own your weaknesses. I was just talking to a dear sister who was confessing how ways that our church has failed her in the last four years. Friends, our church has failed you. I'm a leader in this church. I failed you. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But friends, we believe That when we boast in our weakness, when we have the honesty to say, to admit, to confess our sins and sufferings, that that actually makes the cross of Jesus even bigger. That he works redemption through us. This is the boast of the church. 
that though we are weak, he is strong. I want to end with a quote from involving a great theologian. He says, there is a fullness of grace in God. A fullness of grace. It is a long, broad, deep stream of grace. And it bears the believers along from beginning to end into eternity. It is a fullness which gives grace for grace. It is all grace, he says. It is all grace and nothing but grace which comes to the church in Christ. Let that be your boast, Trinity. It is all grace and nothing but grace. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we boast in your grace. Lord, we do not deserve, we do not deserve anything that we have. The houses we live in, the food we ate, the friends, the families. Lord, we do not deserve any of it. Lord, we deserve your punishment. And yet, oh Lord, you've had mercy on us. Oh Lord, and so would that be our boast? Lord, we want to boast in you, not in our wisdom, not in our might, not in our riches. We want to boast in the Lord God and in our precious Savior Jesus who will not leave us in this ever. He will be with us, grace upon grace. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.